Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it actually occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium and annual Battlefield bus tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series published by Savas Beatty Press. Right now, we have seven titles out with more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative that includes self-guided tours of the battlefields of many of the major campaigns of the revolution from South Carolina to Massachusetts. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you would like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another Sunday evening revelry for emerging civil or emerging revolutionary war. Sorry about that. We've been talking with our author about uh, both civil war history and revolutionary war history in the, in the couple of minutes leading up to tonight's uh, book chat with Dr. Benjamin Karp, um, or as uh, you can call him this evening, Ben or Professor Ben or Professor Karp. Uh, uh, getting to know him the last uh, 10 minutes or so has been a, a true delight. And we're in for a great presentation this evening and discussion. Um, but before we get started tonight, a couple things, uh, house, uh, uh, get the house in order. If you have any questions this evening, drop them in the chat. Um, I'll be uh, sending those uh, Ben's way throughout the program tonight and at the end. So uh, don't feel bashful about uh, dropping any questions you may have into the chat. Uh, also, don't forget two weeks from tonight will be our next uh, emerging revolutionary war rev war revelry on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. I uh, also want to let you know that uh, ERW's latest book uh, has just come out uh, in the ERWS series, and that is on the Battle of Camden uh, by uh, ERW historians Rob Orison and Mark Wilcox. So make sure you pick up a copy of that. If you order it through our publisher, Savas Beatty, they can get you a, a signed book plate by the authors. So you're going to want to make sure you pick up that. And also, we've got um, some news on the bus tour coming up in November to Charleston. Um, if you're still on the fence about that, um, please get on the waiting list. Um, you never know, there may be a cancellation uh, here or there by some folks that are unable to make it. So if you're still interested in that, make sure you send us a message on Facebook or through the Emerging Revolutionary War uh, blog, the website, and let us know that you'd be interested in getting on a waiting list. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and get into um, our discussion tonight, our book chat with Dr. Uh, Benjamin Karp. Um, tonight, we are looking at his work, The Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party, and the Making of America. And I've got my, my well-worn copy with me here uh, this evening as we get into it. So, um, Ben, tell us a little bit about why you chose the Boston Tea Party. You know, when I, when I think about the historiography of 
the Revolutionary War era, the Colonial War era. Um, I think about textbooks um, used in public schools and, and you know, post-secondary education. It's Boston Tea Party, Valley Forge, Yorktown, um, and the treaty, and that's what you get. But um, how did you get into Boston Tea Party? Why this moment in this period of history? Yeah, it's funny. I used to say this is sort of a newspaper reference. for So for those of us who remember newspapers, right, I, you know, yeah. I used to call it an above the fold topic, right? Like something that everybody's more or less heard of, you know, um, and so, yeah, what, right. What is what is there new to say? And ironically, I'm kind of reading Bonnie Tremaine now with my my son, and we just finished the chapter on the Boston uh, on the Boston Tea Party. Um, can you hear me? I feel like uh, my connection is not fantastic. Um, yep, I can hear okay, you just fine. Great. Uh, so, yeah, how did I come across this topic? Well, my fir my first book, which was based on my dissertation, it was called Rebels Rising: Cities in the American Revolution, and it looked at how political mobilization took place in the five biggest cities in the years leading up to the Revolutionary War. And I actually picked like a different uh, space within the city for, for each city. So in New York City, it was taverns. In Philadelphia, it was the State House, what's now Independence Hall, and the State House Yard. Uh, for Charleston, it was households. For Newport, it was houses of worship. Uh, and for Boston, which was the first chapter I wrote, it was actually my master's thesis, um, was on the Boston waterfront. Because not just the Boston Tea Party, but there are all sorts of events in uh in boston's resistance that involve water the people of the waterfront one way or the other whether you're talking about merchant seamen or artisans or merchants right there was something i thought about the waterfront community banding together uh and expunging uh certain british or british allied figures from the boston peninsula uh, to castle island that I thought was really significant. So I'd already had some things to say about the Boston Tea Party. And then weirdly, an editor, I was at the University of Edinburgh and an editor approached one of my colleagues saying, when was the last time someone wrote a book on the Boston Tea Party? And my colleague was like, nah, I'm going into something else right now, but meet my young colleague who just joined <laughs> us, who has a chapter on the Boston waterfront. And I was like, actually, the last time somebody did a book that was just on the Boston Tea Party had been in the 1960s, it's a great book, Benjamin Labrie's uh, Boston Tea Party. But since then, not only have there been a lot of interesting secondary source works that give us new angles into the Tea Party, whether it's Al Young's book on the shoemaker in the Tea Party or Tim Breen's book, Marketplace of Revolution, uh, uh, Phil Deloria's Playing Indian, uh, you know, a lot of things that had kind of contributed little pieces to helping us understand further dimensions of the Boston Tea Party. I also felt that so much had been digitized that there must be new archival material to uh, to consult as well. So a combination of those two things, I pitched the book, I wrote the book, uh, and um, and felt like I uh, was able to tell the, the, the story in a new way. Absolutely, and I think one of the great things about um, your work, and for those of you that have not picked it up yet, I think after tonight, you're gonna definitely wanna order a copy, is the context in which you place the event. Um, you don't start out on the evening of the tea party and you know flash back a few days, but rather you get us started in, in, in 1750 and you kind of follow you know, the events that are not going on in that Boston waterfront community, but also um, the ties to um, the East India Company and, and, and its development kind of set that scene for us. What is going on um, in, the, in the decade leading up to um, you know, the events that are going to take place in Boston. What are some of the key triggers, flashpoints, things that are going to affect this community in which you've discussed? Yeah, I mean, let me explain what you're noticing, right? I, what I was trying to do was tell a story of the Boston Tea Party that was more local and really helped us to understand Boston and the various elements of that community. Who were the, the, the you know, the Tea Party, the Tea Destroyers? Who were Boston's patriot leaders? 
who were the loyalists, right? Um, what, what involvement were there for Boston's women, right? Like trying to get into Boston and really understanding Boston, revolutionary Boston. Uh, and then I also wanted to tell a global story, right? There's a way in which you can tell the story of the Tea Party where, um, you know, you've got this company, the East India Company, which is increasingly becoming uh, a ruling power in South Asia. One of their principal products, tea, is grown by the Chinese. Uh, Europeans begin drinking it in the tea for the first, really for many, many in widespread way in the for the first time during the early modern era, um, and then when the Bostonians uh, they and when Europeans drink it they mix it with sugar which is farmed by Afro Caribbeans, and when the Bostonians dump it in the harbor they dress as Native Americans. So all of a sudden, right, you've got all these global forces converging. Uh, on this one moment. And so I really felt, and this is what you're seeing, is that I had to back up and explain both Boston and also the wider world where Boston sat. Um, so uh, yeah, you need to understand the East India Company and uh, and the famines that people in Bengal were experiencing uh, in part because of East, in uh, East India Company rule. Uh, you need to understand a little bit about how rare tea was and why the demand for it was so hot and heavy in Britain and in the British colonies in America. Um, and, you, you know, and, and you need to under like, and I even talk a little bit about like, well, the, the boycotts of tea become so famous in America. Uh, why weren't people boycotting sugar in order to protest slavery? And I sort of, you know, uh, slip that in in the end. Uh, and I'm really only suggestive, but uh, the links obviously between slavery and the American Revolution has been a pretty hotly debated topic since then. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, so again, I find all that really interesting. But as far as setting the scene in Boston, you know, look, there have been so many great historians of Boston because everybody knows that revolutionary Boston is, is important. But I really wanted to kind of make sure that my readers also were situated like, all right, let's understand the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act. Uh, you know, let's understand the, the Townsend duties and, you know, Boston seeing it, it, itself as uh, trying to keep up with the Sons of Liberty in New York and Philadelphia. It really had to understand that. Uh, I also wanted to kind of say, well, what were the, the, the guys who destroyed the tea, who I'm fascinated by, to the extent that we can identify them, what was like, how were some of them politicized? Were some of them involved in political groups or previous protests, right? I say in the book that the bullets narrowly missed four people who would later participate in the Tea Party, right? And so the, you know, seeing the people who were killed uh, during the Boston massacre, uh, right, becomes this, um, you, you know, that may have been a radicalizing moment for uh, for those men. And so understanding what might've been going through the head of the people who dumped the tea, right? Not just because of what had been happening over the previous weeks or since the passage of the Tea Act, but really understanding the longer history. Because in some ways, like the Tea Act itself is important, but the Tea Act not only doesn't raise any new taxes, but actually was going to make tea cheaper for American consumers. And so you really need to understand like, okay, then what was what was the Townsend duty? What was the objection to that? Do the Americans see themselves as having anything in common with the people of South Asia, right? As they think about the rapacity of the East India Company or something like that. I thought there were all these interesting dimensions that uh, that were worth exploring further. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the, the interesting points that, that comes out of some of these early chapters that provide this great foundational understanding is how these particular things, um, some of these acts, some of the ideology that's 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 passing around, how it's you know particularly impacting or affecting just specific, the specific area within Boston. Um, so you really get a, a really intimate look at life um, along the Boston waterfront and how these things are are affecting the day to day lives of these individuals that will become key players. Um, as we move into the the you know the 1760s and 1770s, uh, as you go throughout the narrative, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been my argument for a long time that cities are just fascinating places. They're really yes. dynamic. New people are showing up all the time. And yet the cities were intimate enough that most of the you know longtime residents largely knew one another. And so like what comes, you know, and, and newspapers are rare places to find like the organs of government and newspapers and, you know, and, and all this commerce and things like that. Ideas are moving around, you, you know, there's there's just, you know, new goods, right? The latest fashions, right? And so what happens when you put all that in in these tiny places like on the peninsula of Boston you know what what does that mean for um you know for the, for the political dynamics that we see and i think this the stretch leading up to the actual tea party itself is almost a microcosm for many other areas throughout the colonies and can really be a story that is representative or indicative of that colonial experience, if you will. Um, if anything, you know, those events leading up to the Tea Party um, and how it particularly impacts one local community uh, is a great case study um, for, for other metropolitan areas, if you will, uh, in, in the colonies. When you were working on this, this you know, the context or providing the, um, you know, the, the background information for the readers in, in this study, um, one of the things you noticed was, or, or told us this evening was, the, the use of new sources or sources that have been digitized. You know, what were some of the things that you were finding um, to this specific area of Boston that um, you thought was particularly intriguing? You're like, I got to include this in the background. It's going to make the events um, in 1773 much more impactful if, if they understand this. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing that digitization, digit, digitized records allowed me to do was to, like, there are these names of people who participated in the Tea Party, but like being able to kind of trawl through like old 19th century local histories, like allowed me to find out more about who those guys were than I think would have been possible before, because some of them like move away from Boston after the revolution. And so trying to find them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right, was difficult, right, unless there had been genealogy on them or something like that. And so that was one of the things that digitization allowed me to do. But actually, I think one of my favorite sources, I think I I actually found in manuscript, uh, which was from the William Palfrey papers at Houghton Library at Harvard University. Uh, the um, William Palfrey was an associate of John Hancock's, and he's kind of traveling uh, around New York and, and and Philadelphia. And I think he's mostly there for, for uh, commercial reasons, but he's also like talking politics with people. And he writes back to Boston, and I think he's writing to Hancock, and he says, Boston really needs to make sure that the tea doesn't land, or it will never be able to recover its reputation among the Sons of Liberty in New York and Philadelphia, right? Like, because Boston had kind of punked out a little bit on the non-importation agreements back in 1770. And so the Sons of Liberty in New York and Philadelphia were like, hey, we've been smuggling all our tea, but the Bostonians have been drinking legally imported tea from Britain, and we really don't like that. And so if Boston's really going to, you know, stand with us, then, you know, then they've got to stand with us now. And so I realized, oh, like, the Bostonians are actually feeling peer pressure. And that's what makes them dump the tea, right? It's they, they feel that they can't land it. Uh, and the governor's not letting them send it back to London. And so it's not, you know, they ne wouldn't necessarily have been the first purple people that you would think of to commit this kind of violent act, even though Boston actually has this terrible reputation as the ringleader of all violence back in London. Uh, they, there's actually some evidence that they might have dragged their feet, except that they are feeling this peer pressure uh, from their brethren in, uh, in, in the middle colonies. You know, I think one of the things that we've kind of skirted around so far is we talked a little bit about the context, some of the things that were going on, um, and we've referenced, you know, how you focus in on this this one particular community, if you will. Um, 
describe for us that community. Um, you know, who are these people? What are their daily lives like? What are their occupations? Where do they fit in the, you know, the social ladder within Boston itself? Um, you know, their, their economic fortunes or or stations in life. Talk you're, us you're a little talking about bit. the tea, the tea destroyers themselves? Uh, just the community in general. Uh, well, I mean, we... the community in general ranges from John Hancock, a wealthy merchant, to, you know, yeah. uh, uh, to enslaved people, right, uh, with, with very little yeah. to their names. Um, so you see, you see the full spe uh, spectrum in Boston, although Boston probably was at least somewhat more egalitarian than the middle colonies and certainly the South. Uh, just because New Englanders tended to sand off the edges and um, and have a, a, a relatively somewhat more egalitarian approach to the world. Uh, most Bostonians were members of, uh, of congregational churches, not all, but, uh, you know, that certainly defines a lot about New Englanders and their zeal, right, uh, their connection to the English Puritans and, you know, and the kinds of people who chopped off King Charles I's head, uh, that, you know, all that certainly makes a difference. Uh, Bostonians, uh, you know, were largely reliant on on maritime commerce and shipbuilding and fishing uh, for their livelihood. Uh, Massachusetts was not exactly an agrarian breadbasket uh, in the same way that you uh, that was true of some of the other North American colonies. Uh, it's very much dependent on the Caribbean and importing uh, sugar products, either legal or not, in order to either distill it into rum or, um, you know, or, 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 or reship it to elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, and so these are the things that make Boston tick. And so if you look at people's occupations, right, you see caulkers and shipwrights and coopers, uh, you know, and, uh, and merchant mariners and, uh, you know, and uh, all these people who are involved in shipbuilding, commerce, uh, in in one way or another. I mean, that is really what is defining uh, this city for the most part, this town, not, not yet a city. Only 16,000 people, right? And that makes it the third largest uh, in the in the British American colonies. So it really is very kind of tight knit in a lot of ways too. Which definitely comes across in your narrative. Um, you really get a sense as you're reading through these events, um, particularly getting closer and closer to the, the actual act itself of of this community and you almost you know i kind of felt like all oh, right i'm like I, i'm in this movement now like i you know i'm getting to know these people who they are they're kind of feeling like my neighbors and you know that's where i kind of wanted to go next who are some of the the key players that that rise to the top uh, if you will before the actual events themselves yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to answer that question. I mean, you know, the most familiar people in our minds are people like Samuel Adams and Joseph Warren, you know, maybe if you really read up on this stuff, you would know the names of Dr. Thomas Young or William Molyneux or or William Cooper, right? You know, some of the other more elite guys uh, who, who were involved in the leadership, John Hancock, right, obviously. Um, but uh, I was also interested in knowing like, okay, who are the merchant families who are picked by the East India Company to receive the tea, right, who are called the consignees? Right. And so that involved two of Governor Thomas Hutchinson's sons and also relatives of Governor Hutchinson by marriage, Richard Clark and his sons. Uh, and so I really felt that knowing about them, about the owners of the ships and about the captains of the ships, at least knowing their names, uh, you know, was uh, and, and a lot of those guys became loyalists for somewhat obvious reasons. Uh, it, you know, so I, I thought it was really important to know them, too. Uh, but I also wanted to make sure that we understood the world of the guys who uh, who destroyed the tea, right? What was their, and you were sort of hinting at this before, what was their social position? What yeah. was their political involvement? And the interesting thing is we, we often want to think in terms of class, right? Like 
were they working class? And some historians are really uncomfortable with this, like no class, you know, that's historians imposing, you know, Marxist categories on the past and whatever. I mean, look, it was clear that some men worked with their hands and some men, were, you know, lived lives of leisure. So we can sort of talk about that stuff. But the other thing to remember is the relative youth of a lot of the participants, right? A lot of teenagers, guys in their 20s. So they might well have eventually become wealthier, but they weren't at the stage of the, of life where if they hadn't inherited a lot of wealth, where they would be wealthy yet. Uh, and so, what, you, you know, and so you see a lot of guys who are not necessarily super economically well off, but they seem to be pointed toward uh, some kind of artisan career, whether they would eventually make it as a master artisan, right, as Paul Revere did, right, or whether they would, you know, remain in a, a um, in more of an apprentice or journeyman's role, right, it's, if you take the snapshot of 1773, it might not have been clear yet, particularly for some of the teenage boys who are involved, right, if you're just an ore maker's apprentice or something like that, uh, it's not clear where you're going to go in life yet, uh, you, you know, in, in Boston, they valued hard work and, you know, and, and obedience. And so if you, uh, and also being a good brawler. And so if you could do all those things, well, uh, you might get ahead in Boston, uh, in Boston's community, uh, you know, and really one of the things that makes the, the tea destroyers so close knit is that they swear each other to secrecy. Actually, the stories of like, I participated in the tea party, or my father or, you know, my relative who just died participated in the tea party, those don't really start to come out until the 1820s with a couple of exceptions. Mm. So the idea that these guys all did this and then kept the secret for 50 years, on the one hand, it makes the historian's job really, really hard. But on the other hand, it really shows like, not just that there was advanced planning involved, but just, um, uh, you know, but just, uh, I, I think it just says something about the culture that like, you, you know, that they were able to do this in plain sight, but feel really confident that no one was ever going to be able to touch them, just like with the Gaspé riot in um, in Providence the year before. So I want to take a, a step back because we had a question come in. Um, question about the tea itself coming into Boston and the colonies. <clears throat> Is the tea that's coming in loose leaf tea or the solid small blocks of tea? Yeah, from what I understand, brick tea was for when you transported tea overland, right? So if it's going to become part of a caravan that's going to go to Afghanistan or to Russia or something, you might pack it into bricks. Uh, when you're shipping it overseas in those days, first of all, it only comes from China, right? A lot of the Indian varieties of tea like Assam and Darjeeling that we're familiar with, uh, the, the, the tea is not really grown in India until the British Empire starts doing that in the 1800s. So in the 1700s, China, really just two provinces in China are the only game in town, uh, if you want, white, white tea, green tea, black tea. Um, the tea that's dumped in Boston Harbor is two varieties of green tea and four varieties of black tea. Uh, I used to know them all by heart. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't anymore. Kongu, Bohi, uh, Suchong, uh, um, Heisen. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember all of them. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's loose. Uh, and even though you often see in 19th century lith lithographs and other paintings that they're throwing like the entire crates uh, into the water, that is definitely not what, what they did. What they did was they took axes, chopped the crates up, um, and then dumped the loose uh, leaves into the tea. And actually, this is the comical moment that I uh, often like to tell uh, younger audiences and stuff is that the tide was out. And so the tea begins to clump up over the waterline. And so they actually have to send some teenage boys down to the water in boats to kind of row out and like bat the, the piles with oars so that the tea will like break up and float off into the harbor. Uh, because there are actually a couple of unscrupulous people who then tried to collect the clumps later on and um, and sell it because, of course, you know, pound for pound, it's really valuable stuff, and you could you could resell it probably for a lot of money. 
Um, capitalism so at its finest. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you're right. Yeah. So the, but the point was, right, it was yeah. to defy capitalism and say, yeah. you know, even though this stuff is really valuable and we're getting it for cheaper than ever, that we have this political principle that we want to defend. And so we need to destroy it and only yeah. it, right? Like they yeah. deliberately tried not to, they, they deliberately endeavored not to damage anything else aboard the ships. They even replaced a lock uh, that they broke on one of the ships. Uh, they really wanted to make the point like, this isn't theft. This isn't random mayhem. This is just our objection to this particular shipment of this particular product. Uh, they wouldn't let us just send it back to Boston. And so this was, you know, they're, they're arguing that this was their only choice. So I think we're, we're at that point now. And, and so is our audience, because we're starting to get some questions. You know, um, let's, let's get into the actual story <clears throat> of the events that are going to lead to the, the evening in which, the, you know, the tea is, is destroyed. You mentioned already some of the key players. When does the planning begin? Um, when you know when are the meetings taking place? You know who's involved? Who's who's leading these meetings? Um, get us through the planning stages of what you know, ultimately is going to happen. I mean, I don't know if you ever watched the HBO show The Wire, right? But you don't take notes on a criminal <laughs> conspiracy, and so if you don't have notes for the criminal conspiracy, historians have nothing to read. So really, all we can do is speculate, and there are some snatches of sources that give us an indication of this. In Johnny Tremaine, for instance, Esther Forbes guesses that Samuel Adams begins pl uh, planning this the day that the Dartmouth arrives in Boston Harbor, but we don't really know that for sure. Uh, and especially since this was sort of a last resort, and they didn't know that the governor was going to be stubborn, uh, you know, it's possible that it was planned much closer to the, you know, to the event. Uh, it's clear that there were some people who joined the Tea Party spontaneously, but that there were others who were in on it from the beginning. Uh, one of the interesting questions that I raise in the book is, was this planned from the top down by the, the wealthiest and most influential Bostonians, or was it um, actually planned possibly by more working class guys themselves? And there's actually evidence of both. In one account that we get, there was, you know, it was a it was a, a wealthier person, you know, who kind of stepped right. Like, so for one thing, I, I looked in the Caleb Davis papers in the Massachusetts Historical Society. This was a wealthy Boston merchant who was kind of politically connected, but a lot of the members of the Boston Tea Party worked for that guy. So you can imagine a guy like that being like, "Hey, I've contracted with you before. You, you, and you. I know you guys to be trustworthy." you do this, right? I'm I'm the one who's connected to Samuel Adams. I'm telling you to do this. And that it was mm -hmm. kind of ordered from, you know, from on the top, you know, to uh, trusted men on the bottom. But then I also found this document that said that there were a bunch of, you know, ordinary working Bostonians who got together and said, we feel that something has to be done about the Tea Party. And they went to ask a wealthy and influential guy. And the influential guy was like, I've got nothing to tell you. All I can tell you is that if you go, you will find friends. In other words, you will find like-minded people. So uh, it could well be that uh, ordinary Bostonians were organizing themselves, not just waiting to be told what to do uh, by a more influential leader. So I find that dynamic to be really fascinating and something that you don't um, often find as, mu as much evidence of as you, as you would like in, um, in history. Yeah, and I think that that continues to to score underscore you know your narrative of just how important and connected and close this community was. This is something that you know if you argue that you know organic evolution to this um, from the bottom up, it's definitely community driven. It's um, class driven. It's it's occupationally driven. So um, it's just a fascinating um, moment to get to know these folks um, before the actual evening when it occurs. Walk us through the day. Um, the day of the events, and sure. then we'll, we'll we'll get them on the boats themselves, and 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 go from there. 
Right. Well, on the, on the day of the event, right. So the, the reason why the event occurs on December 26 is that the Dartmouth, which was the first of the three T-ships, had arrived in Boston Harbor on November 29th. And there was a customs law that said, if you have dutiable goods on board, you have 20 days to land them. And if you don't, your cargo will be seized and all, ship and all of its cargo will be sold. Um, so in other words, the clock is eventually going to run out. Sorry, my... Um, can you still see me? Uh, yep, things keep happening with my connection. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if you're if you're seeing that, but it's throwing me off a little bit. Um, so okay, so the Bostonians have 20 days that they've got to do something. So they try a bunch of other things. They try to pressure the consignees and they say, resign your commissions to receive this tea. Then there will be nobody to receive it, and it'll have to go back. And they're like, well, we're not really sure, or if we, you know, or we don't want to be held liable. So if we're going to do that, there needs to be some kind of permission. They pressure the captains. They say, why don't you just turn your ship around? They say, I can't do that. Like, uh, I'm responsible to the owner. They're going to seize my ship. One of the owners uh, of the Dartmouth was Francis Roach, a member of a Nantucket whaling oil family. They didn't really care about the tea. They just wanted to be able to like drop off the off all the tea so that they could load it with whale oil and send it back to England to to sell it there. They're just impatient for this to all be over. Uh, and so they say to Francis Roach, well, okay, like we get that you'll be liable if they seize your ship. So we're going to make, you, you know, why don't you go to the governor and ask him? So he's got to go seven miles to Milton where uh, Thomas Hutchinson has his country estate. He's got to go seven miles to Milton and ask the governor for permission. Hey, governor, could you look the other way while I turn my ship around with dutiable goods aboard? I know that's illegal, but as long as you don't sick the Navy on me, Right. Uh, I'll, I'll deal with whatever problems arise from this when I get back to England. But I really don't you know, I'm, I'm facing pressure from the community here. Like, I, I, I don't feel that I can safely land the tea. So the governor's like, ah, I don't know. And he's even like, what if we played out this farce where like the the Navy fire? Like, I try to turn around and then the Navy fires on me, you know, and the governor's like, no, I'm not going to break any laws. You're just you know, you're just going to have to face the music here. And we'll you know, we'll see and, and we'll see what happens. So he goes back to the Old South Meeting House, which was the largest building in town, this church uh, where thousands of Bostonians have gathered. This is not their first meeting. They are gathered there not as the town meeting of Boston, but as the body of the people uh, involving not just Boston, but the surrounding town. So in other words, the town is not going to be responsible for whatever decisions made here. This is something you know, just a spontaneous meeting of the community. Clearly, you know, there's nothing illegal about that, right? We can, we're not gathering as on official business. We're just gathering because we are concerned members of our community. So thousands of people are gathered there. They're waiting for Roach to find his way back. Roach is only 23 years old. He's not, you know, he's not exactly wow. the kind of guy who's trying to throw his weight around. But he shows up and he says, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, the governor wouldn't look the other way. And then supposedly Samuel Adams says, well, then this is this meeting can do nothing more to save the country. And people begin shouting from the galleries like uh, the Mohawks are come Boston, tea, Boston Harbor, a teapot tonight. Uh, and all of the really influential guys like Adams and Hancock and Warren, they ostentatiously stay behind in the Old South Meeting House and begin giving more speeches about the importance of standing strong, et cetera, et cetera. But what the crowd begins doing is walking down to Griffin's Wharf, following uh, this group of guys who had been dressed as Native Americans and, and whooping. And they go down to Griffin's Wharf and three parties of men, maybe about 100 people total, very hard to get a solid number here, maybe 100 people, people total, board all three of the ships. And in about two or three hours, they have chopped open uh, 340 chests of tea and dumped it all into the harbor. 
uh, and uh, the Navy, you know, is watching this happen, uh, you know, without being ordered uh, to do something by the governor, there is nothing they can do about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, so the tea all, you know, go, goes into the harbor. Uh, there was a fourth tea ship that ran aground on the back of Cape Cod. That becomes kind of another story. Uh, there were other tea ships that uh, made their way to Philadelphia, to New York, although that one was quite slow. Uh, and to Charleston, South Carolina. Boston is the place where this happens. Uh, there are other smaller incidents of tea destruction that happen over the coming months, uh, but the Boston one, right, the amount of tea that they destroyed was uh, 90, it was worth 96,000 pounds sterling. Uh, to give you a sense of that, um, one chest of tea would have bought you Paul Revere's house in the North End. So if you multiply that by 340 times, right, uh, you get a sense of the value of what was destroyed, right? This isn't just like a few tea bags that you could then, you know, go down to the grocery store and replace it. Uh, it would have been worth at least between one and $2 million uh, in today's dollars. Although actually wow. I haven't, that was my calculation 13 years ago, it'd probably be worth even more now. A little higher now. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, um, as the, the the crowd is is making their way down towards the wharf itself, you mentioned that some of them are dressed like Mohawks. And we had a question come in um, that um, really enjoyed chapter seven of your book, which is called Resolute Men, or Dressed as Mohawks. And the question regarding um, chapter seven, um, they were looking for a, a short answer, because they understand it's a very complicated um, yeah. question, is why Mohawks in particular? Why, yeah. why not, um, you know, any other tribe? Why not you know, any other costume? Why Mohawks in particular? Yeah, there, there were other tribe uh, nations whose names were attached to it, like the Narragansett, like the Mashpee, right, who were who were mentioned, right? Uh, uh, names of nations that would have been known uh, closer to home in New England. I think the reason that they picked Mo the Mohawk is that the Mohawk were deliberately not, they were considered not part of New England, but on the border of New England, right? They were, you know, their homelands were mostly in eastern New York. Uh, but they ranged into New England and they had fought actually alongside the New Englanders during King Philip's War. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they had fought against uh, uh, the New Englander, like Iroquois had fought against the New Englanders to some degree, the New Englanders to some degree during the Seven Years' War. So the, the Mohawks were known as a kind of nearby and particularly fierce and fearsome nation. And so I think if you were going to strike fear into the hearts of your audience, right, like where your audience here, I guess, is the East India Company and its merchants and, and Governor Hutchinson and the, Brit and the British, you know, you're trying to kind of say we are fierce and independent and autonomous Americans who will not be messed with. Who do we know like that? The Mohawk Nation. Right. I mean, there's like I talk about this in the chapter. There's also some maybe some racial scapegoating that's going on here. You know, but but obviously nobody actually thinks these guys are Native Americans. Everybody knows that it's white men in disguise. So they are donning a sort of mascot. Right. This is cosplay. Right. Like they're donning yeah. a, a sort of mascot that is is meant to convey a message. Uh, the disguise itself is meant to convey the message. We you we we know that everyone knows who we are, but you'd better not tell. But the Mohawk disguise is meant to send the additional message that we are a particularly freedom-loving band of Americans. Uh, you know, don't mistake us for real natives, right? Because we know that those, you know, we have a kind of fraught relationship with them, uh, but we're going to adopt their identity in order to adopt what we perceive as their best qualities. Uh, this is problematic in all sorts of ways, as Phil Deloria, the Harvard scholar, uh, you know, points out in his earlier book, 
uh, called Playing Indian, which looks at the history of white people dressing up as natives, uh, you know, throughout American history. But he starts with the Boston Tea Party as this moment of like, oh, it's an American identity that is not quite European and is not quite native, right? To be white and American is something in between. You know, I, I think that is perhaps one of the, the biggest controversies or myths, if you will, to come out of the actual event of the Boston Tea Party. Um, were there any other, you know, sort of longstanding controversies or myths that come out of, of the the Tea Party itself? So many that, myths, um, man. We're in the business yeah. of busting myths. I did an, art, an article that, uh, you know, people can look up online called like the seven myths of the Boston Tea Party. Uh, some of the ones that I really, uh, really hate, right? Like, um, you know, I mean, so like, right, the idea that the Tea Act was going to raise taxes on people, uh, the idea that these were, that this was British government ships or British government tea that was destroyed, not really. Um, the idea that it was even called the Boston Tea Party before the 1820s, it was not. Um, uh, it wasn't called a tea party. It was just called the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor. So there, I mean, there are lots of different uh, uh, myths. Um and then, but like really what I try and end the book with is like to kind of give people a problem to figure out. Like if we were to have a Boston Tea Party today, would you actually root for it, right? Would you mm -hmm. be on the side of people who are willing to destroy property for the sake of a higher principle, right? If it were environmentalism or abortion or, you know, just protesting taxes, right? Would you be in favor of that level of protest, right? Or would you be on the side of the British government and the East India Company who were like, hey, this is private property and you can't just be lawless just because you don't like this particular law, right? And so, yeah. you know, so, uh, you know, I, I find that really interesting that, um, that the Boston Tea Party is kind of on the knife's edge of violence and disorder on the one hand, um, and then, you know, order and, and higher principles on the, uh, 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 on the, uh, of some kind on the other. And so, uh, right, that's, to me that like, one way to puncture the myth is to kind of say like, actually, this is a, a sort of interesting problem, right? It's like, an, it's, a, it's actually an interesting and rich history. And you sort of owe it to the people who lived through it to kind of understand the dilemma that they were facing rather than, in, than enshrouded in some kind of like, oh, this is civil disobedience. And like, this is how we became like such an awesome country, right? Like that's the bedtime story, right? That's fine for kids. Um, but if you're going to re really be a kind of serious student of history, you have to kind of look at like, oh, like these are actually interesting problems that every society has to wrestle with as they try and establish a better and freer world. Did the Americans go about it in the right way? Is the society that they laid down perfect, right? Like most of us would yeah. say to the answer to the question, second question, no, the society they created wasn't perfect, right? So what is it about this community banding together and doing something that we see as noble, but also using quite a bit of violence to do it, right? And 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 committing this kind of very anarchic act, right? What's our feeling about that today? Is that something where we're just unthinkingly inspired by it and think it's great? Or do we want to think it through a, a, a little bit more? Um, and again, like, I'm not trying to kind of come down on one side or that or the other, but I want readers to kind of play with that question a little bit and, mm -hmm. and understand who the people were that were that actually lived through this on one side of the issue or the other. Yeah, and I think one of the genesis to that question was I had just read that article within the last week on on the the seven myths of of the Boston Tea Party. So for our listeners tonight, we'll make sure to to get a link to uh, Ben's article on that. It is a, a definitely a in depth um, follow up to his work, uh, and it's it's a very good companion piece um, to tackle some of some of the myths of of the Boston Tea Party. Well, I want to kind of transition now, and you laid it out um, some of the you know, immediate outcomes uh, versus long range implications of the Tea Party itself. I love how 
you know, after the, the, the Tea Party itself is over, you follow William Russell, uh, school teacher William Russell, you follow him back to his house and you, know, you talk about him taking off his shoes. What What is the immediate reaction within the Boston community? And then how does that begin to to ripple up, uh, uh, ripple out from Boston? Um, let's talk about, you know, some of those immediate outcomes um, and implications. Yeah, my understanding is that most Bostonians were more or less in agreement with it. Of course, there were a minority of Bostons who Bostonians who were considered friends of government who felt that even if they didn't like the Townsend Acts or the Tea Act, that uh, that vi that violence and mayhem were the wrong approach. So there were definitely people who were kind of like, I don't know, or, you know, and 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 also they're like, hey, punishment is now going to come down on this community like a ton of bricks, and it is going to be your fault, right? Like you know, are my tax dollars now going to have to get used to re to indemnify the East India Company for its losses? Well, like, you know, and so there's like, there may well have been annoyance, but it wouldn't have necessarily been spoken aloud. If you broaden the scope to the rest of the colonies, you see people like Benjamin Franklin and and George, George Washington actually kind of rubbing their necks and being like, I don't know, like, this seems like a little bit too flagrant to me. Uh, and eventually, right, the reason why most other Americans come around is because of Parliament's reaction. It's because of the passage of the Course of Acts. And, and then at that point, the rest of the Americans, you know, whether it's Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Clearly, you guys really are looking to oppress Boston and Massachusetts in a way that really threatens the rest of us. And, and we are not cool with that. So again, that's one of the myths that I talk about in that article, right? Like, we think that the Boston Tea Party was such a dramatic act that it galvanized Americans into protesting against Parliament and joining the resistance and eventually taking up arms. But that's not true. It's the British reaction to the, the, the Boston Tea Party, the course of acts that really radicalizes a lot of Americans and begins to prepare them for the idea of independence in a way that would not have been true in early 1773. Now, how do you see those acts, <clears throat> the importance of those acts play out? Is it still a spirit in Boston, you know, two years later, three years later? You know, what one of the things you talked about earlier in, in the program tonight was looking at those players and those sentiments. Uh, and you mentioned how many of them move away from Boston in, in the post-war period. You know, talk to us a little bit about the long-term effects on not only the players, but, you know, the community um, as a whole. You know, it's interesting. There are some scholars out there that talk about like our different kind of political regions in this country, right? Colin, what's his name? Colin Woodward, right? Wrote, a, wrote an interesting book. He was basing it in part on, on David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed a little bit, right? The New Englanders move into Northern New York, right? And become like, you know, the abolitionists and the women's suffragists, you know, and then some of them move to Ohio and Northern Illinois, right? And you, yeah. you know, and you have a kind of greater New England, Right, that uh, you know, in addition to the ones who moved up north, north to Vermont or to to Maine, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a kind of region of this country that's Greater New England, and we don't really think of this country that way anymore because our divide is mostly urban and educated versus uh, versus rural, right? Um, okay. But uh, you know, but if you look at a lot of periods of American history, particularly in the 19th century, you had a northern sentiment of being somewhat more egalitarian and being willing to kind of fight for higher principles, right, uh, you know, versus a South, right, that was, you know, the, the, that thought of things in very different ways. So, um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I actually looked at some of the Boston Tea Party participants and, you know, who their families were and things like that. And, uh, and it's interesting, like, uh, there were a lot of literary figures in the 19th century whose ancestors 
uh, had been in the Boston Tea Party. Uh, Herman Melville's grandfather had been at the Boston Tea Party. Edith Wharton had an ancestor at the Boston Tea Party. Um, uh, and there were a, a number of other like more minor figures. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne married into a Tea Party family. Um, and so, you, you know, if you want to talk about the kind of spirit of New England, right, uh, I, you know, I, I like one could argue, right, that the, there was something in um, the Boston Tea Party itself that then disseminated to different parts of the of the North, right? But uh, that's a little bit woo woo and mystical. So <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to make too strong an argument for that. Well, I, we're getting towards the end of the program tonight. I want to make sure because we got we got a couple of questions that have come in. But one of the things I do would be would be remiss if we didn't talk was um, not only the the secrecy of the of the participants that you mentioned earlier in the program that I want to talk about. Kind of sifting through that story but then also you know as you and i discussed before we began tonight with the 250th coming up of the boston tea party really you know the legacy of of these events in boston in 1773 and and you know where do you see that legacy um moving into the 250th and beyond so i guess let's start with you know the secrecy of the participants um and how that story begins to um, come about, as you mentioned, 50 years after uh, in the 18 teens and 1820s. Yeah, I mean, it's like they, we can imagine that the men who participated in the Boston Tea Party would never have had an opportunity to regather and be like, okay, it's safe to say now, right? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> no some, of them have, some of them may have been individually worried that they would be subject to civil suit by the East India Company, right? And like personally held liable, even though Britain, they weren't part of Britain anymore. That doesn't necessarily mean they couldn't be sued in open court. I don't know. Right. Um, but for those reasons, they do keep it secret. And so it's only when the bulk of uh, members of the Boston Tea Party started to pass away that all of a sudden it became safe to tell that story. Uh, we can imagine that a lot of opportunists use the opportunity to kind of make it up, right? Like they took a grandfather who was a witness to the Tea Party and said, oh, no, my grandfather was on board the ships, right? And I'll always tell a story about my um, my parents in Woodstock, right? My parents were camp counselors in, in northern New Jersey. Uh, and they had 24 hours off and they began driving towards Woodstock, uh, but they hit too much traffic. And so they had to turn around and so they didn't go. So like I could go around claiming like, oh, my parents were at Woodstock and claim a connection to this historic concert. Uh, but uh, but instead, I'm honest with people and I say, well, no, not really. Actually, it's a bit of a letdown story. <laughs> so but how many people would have been tempted right in 1830s New England to be like my grandfather, my dad was at the Boston Tea Party. And so many of the the stories that were told about who was at the Boston Tea Party might not be true. And, you know, I, I used the rule that if your story didn't come out until like 1850, like there's no way that, right, that it wasn't just made up out of thin air. Um, and there were a couple of other stories where it's like, mm, this doesn't square with the facts. So it's, um, you know, I, I tried to provide as much verification as possible for who was there, but the secrecy obviously makes it very difficult. Uh, and it's not clear that people who were coming forth 50 years later, um, were really, you know, were really being completely accurate about, you know, about the story they were telling. So when does that legacy then pick up? If, we're, if we don't really, you know, if the, the participants aren't really coming out into the 18 teens, 1820s, you know, as this generation is aging out, if you will, um, where do we see the early roots of that legacy take hold in, you know, uh, the American lexicon of important moments in American history? And, and how does that, how does that legacy, I know it's a, 
large question for a short amount of time. How does that legacy unfold throughout the rest yeah. of the, the 19th I mean, the legacy manifests centuries. itself in as many ways as you can imagine. Abolitionists in the, uh, you know, in the 1850s, anti-abolitionists in the 1830s, wets and dries over the issue of alcohol, uh, the tax protesters, the KKK and the Knights of Mary Fagan, uh, right? Um, Gandhi and Sun Yat-sen invoke the Boston Tea Party, right? Like, so, uh, you, you know, uh, like, it's such a visual, it's such an iconic event that like stands out in people's minds so much, the idea of destroying property in order to protest uh, a greater injustice that Americans refer back to it time and again. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that the people who participated in January 6th saw themselves as carrying on the legacy of the Boston Tea Party with their Gadsden flags, right, and their Confederate battle flags and things like that. Um, but on the other hand, right, I don't think that the Boston Tea Party should only belong to a certain stripe of nationalists, right? Like, it's an event that belongs to the United States. Uh, and it's something that, you know, uh, no matter what our cause, right, we might well want to, right? I mean, eco-terrorists, right? You know, we could compare to the Boston Tea Party, right? Like, so left, right, you know, uh, any number of other political movements in between, I think that the the, the Boston Tea Party fairly belongs to any of them. Uh, and, uh, and as long as we understand the history and understand the analogy that we're drawing, I don't think that we should allow only one segment of the uh, of American society to claim the Boston Tea Party as their own. Well, fantastic. I, I want to thank you all for joining us this evening. And Ben, um, what, a, what an interesting presentation this evening, a great book talk. Um, if you've not picked this book up yet, Defiance of the Patriots, uh, the Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Um, I think this is going to stand as the book on, on the subject for many years to come. Uh, and it's going to be a great book for you to, to read and have as we uh, make our way towards the 250th. Oh, thanks to Boston. Thank you so much. These were great questions. And I'd be remiss if, I, you know, Yale University Press will beat me up if I don't say, hey, I also yes. did this other book, um, which I don't know, the, uh, the uh, camera seems not to like, but uh, The Great New York Fire of 1776, uh, which is also with Yale University Press and came out this year. Yes, uh, we were. I was fortunate to talk with Ben a little bit before tonight's program on that book. It's uh, as many of our our viewers this evening have that to be read pile. It is in the to be read pile, uh, whether that be on your nightstand or uh, on your end table in the living room. Um, but um, Ben, it was such an enjoyable evening this evening talking with you, um, folks. Uh, we hope you enjoyed tonight's presentation with Dr. Benjamin Carp on the Boston Tea Party. Pick up a copy of his book if you haven't already, and don't forget to tune back in in two weeks to ERW's next Sunday evening revelry. We'll see you again real soon. Thanks again.